So what happens though, if you're thinking about this, what happens when it feels like uh, you're around people and all they want, all it seems that they want is something from you? Have you ever been in a situation where you're engaged with people, you're around them, or you come in close proximity to them, and it always feels like they need something from you? But they not only just need something from you, they just really don't even think about reciprocating. They, they, don't, they don't think about helping you out as you've helped them. Or what happens if you're that kind of person yourself? Have you been in a position, have you been in a position of need over contribution? And if we're honest, I think we, we've all been there. And we've all kind of been in that position one time or another where we honestly didn't have anything to give but we needed something greatly. And, and we've all had that thought of, of getting things for ourselves over others. And it's especially this way early in our relationship with God. Early in our relationship with God, we're like, I don't know anything. And honestly, I need everything. And we continually think about that question, what's in it for me? We tend to be on the lookout uh, for the question, what do I get and how do I get it? We tend to approach a lot of things in life that way with the what's in it for me attitude. That's why we engaged in certain lines of employment. That's why we decided to be part of one group over another. That's why we chose somebody to date, right? What's in this for me? We choose our jobs and our hobbies based on that. And if we're not careful, we actually choose the person that we marry with that question in mind. What's in it for me? But more often than not, depending on how you've been raised and how you've understood what God's word has to say, you say, my relationship with Jesus has been this. It's been, what's in this relationship for me? But what I want to present to you today is that the idea that authentic relationship is impossible if you're always trying to get something. It's impossible to have an authentic relationship with God or with someone else if you're always trying to take. You're always trying to see what's in it for you. Because you can't have an authentic relationship if you have an agenda. You kind of engage in this little dance when that, when that happens. You're kind of in this dance, a little bit of chit-chat. Hey, how's it going? How's the weather? Oh, it's cold outside. Yeah, it's cold. Hey, um, have you ever thought about, have you ever, you ever felt like you needed to give me? See, as long as you want something from someone, if you consistently want something from someone, you're in this position where you feel like you just got to keep getting it. And if you're not getting what you think you need, you move on. Now, we don't like to kind of admit that because we, we like to think better of ourselves, right? We like to think, you know what? I'm a benevolent person. It just happens right now that I have a little bit of need. And I, I'll, I'll, I'll give back as soon as I get. God, if you give me a million dollars, I would give you some right? God, if, if I would win the lottery, I'd be the most generous person that you have ever seen, right? 
You can't have an authentic relationship with someone if you have an agenda. The amazing thing about God's word is that it applies to us and and that it helps us to understand so many things about ourselves and the world around us. John said, the very amazing thing is that Jesus gave us everything that we needed. Jesus gave us absolutely everything that we needed, namely, he gave us himself. He gave us himself. He showed up. He showed up on this earth and he gave us himself. And if that's not overwhelming to you or if that's not something that causes you to pause and go, you're right. Then today's message is for you. And if that's not overwhelming to me, if that's not one of these these things that just overwhelms me at the thought, then this message is for me. Because when we... When we think on the idea that God showed up on planet Earth because, because he cared so much about you and he cared so much about me, he cared so much about us. When it, when it goes from a theological category in our heads, this, this smart thing, this, this thing where we kind of read it through and we understand it all rationally and, and it's all in this head space that we have and it moves from our head down to our heart. It changes everything. It changes our perspective on absolutely everything. It will be this transformation that happens, as Paul said, that we will experience peace. He said, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will be, will be given to you through Christ. You will be okay. It means that you're going to have peace when things aren't at peace, that you're going to be okay when difficulties arise because there is something greater at work in you. You'll know that there's purpose There's absolute purpose in the seemingly random events that happen. And even in those disappointments. So we're in week four of our journey with John through the gospel of John that we've called eyewitness. And so early on, it's clear. Early on, it's clear that John did not follow Jesus because of faith. John followed Jesus because of what he saw. And because of what he heard. What he saw and what he heard convinced him, absolutely convinced him that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And John trusted him enough based on what he saw and what he heard to follow. And as an old man, John is the only one of the guys left. And as people listened to what John had to say about the amazing signs and wonders that that Jesus performed and and how he followed him through all of the ups and downs and and, and giving the account of, of Jesus ascending back into heaven, the people around John said, you've got to write this thing down. And so he did. And he organized his account around, around events. He organizes his account around signs and evidence, the identity of Jesus the Christ because he wanted future generations to know what he saw and what he heard. But not just so that we would know what Jesus did. He wanted his readers to recognize 
who Jesus is. Recognizing truly who Jesus is reframes everything. So John tells us that these things at the end of his letter, that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have, have what? What can I gain? What can I get? That's a question that most people ask. What do I get out of this? And that's the tension that we're confronted with today. As John describes the fourth sign, the fourth, perhaps the most familiar of the the signs, it's the feeding of the 5,000 plus. Jesus, and at this time, he had left Jerusalem and he headed north towards Galilee. So he left Jerusalem and traveled about 100 miles north towards Galilee. And he gets to the sea and he gets in the boat and he goes to the northernmost shore. It is remote. John the Baptist was just beheaded by Herod. And Jesus needed a break, so he went north. But the problem was when you're Jesus and you're doing the things that he's doing and you're saying the things that he says and you are, are walking through and talking about the kingdom of God and all the things that he talked about, wherever Jesus went, there were people. The people followed him. So in John chapter 6, that's where we're picking up. John chapter 6, verse 2. And a large crowd was following him. But the crowd, you got to understand, the crowd wasn't necessarily following Jesus because of their faith. They were following him because they wanted to see the signs. They wanted to see the wonders. They, They wanted to see what this guy would do next. They heard about the healings. And so they thought, maybe, maybe, maybe I could be healed too. They followed because of what they had seen and what they had heard. John says, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus, though, he went up to the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Have you been there? Have you ever been so worn out emotionally and physically that you just had to sit down? Yeah. Now John says, and this is something that will be important later, now the Passover... The Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And this detail explains what we're going to see happens with the crowd here in a little bit. The Passover, it celebrated Israel's uh, exit from Egypt, exit from slavery in Egypt about 1,500 years before that. It was an annual reminder of their need for another Moses, for another Joshua. Lifting up his eyes then, And seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus on this far remote shore sees this crowd of people just coming toward him. And Jesus knew why they were coming. He knew why they were coming because they wanted something. They wanted to know. They They were more enamored with the signs that he was performing than what those signs had pointed to. And seeing the crowd, Jesus said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these people 
can eat. And I think when we see these things, we, we understand that this is a, an interaction between uh, Jesus and his disciples, and he's trying to help them to understand the greater things that are going on. But also, this lends credibility to this is an eyewitness recollection of what's going on. Jesus said to Philip, hey, where, were, where can we buy some bread so that these people can eat? And John says he said this to test them. For he knew himself what he would do. But Philip, <laughs> Philip answered, nowhere, absolutely nowhere. There's no place that we could buy enough bread for these people. He said, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough. We would be found lacking and they would just get a little bit. But one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, there's a boy here. <laughs> and this probably was him going, okay, listen, here's a boy, this boy here. He has, a low, he has, he has five barley loaves, these little blows, right? And he has two fish. <laughs> Thinking it was a joke, he said, but what is it? What can we do? For there's so many people. And Jesus says, have them sit down. Now, there was a lot of grass in this place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So the estimate of the number of the total of people was somewhere around 20,000 people. This is just a best guess. There's, you're not going to find a, a little footnote on a scroll somewhere tucked away. It's the best guess. But why did John just mention that there were 5,000 men? Because John is setting up something for us. The response of the crowd. He's setting us up to understand something. Did you know that about 5,000 men was the same size as a Roman legion of soldiers? So Jesus took these loaves. And when he had given thanks, the, the disciples looking upon this, they're, they're going, oh my gosh. Do you... It's five loaves, two fish. There are thousands of people. What are you doing? I don't want to be made a fool. They're standing back. It's ridiculous. It's somewhat embarrassing. But he distributed, though, to those who were seated. Hey, guys, hey, go take this and go hand it out. It'd be kind of like me taking a, a, a single salting cracker and saying, okay, I'm going to pass this out and everybody's going to get full. Right? You'd be like, that is crazy. But the fish, so they gave out the bread and the fish as much as people wanted. And then when they had eaten their fill, when they were satisfied, when they were done taking and taking and taking, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So under Moses, under Moses, the wandering Israelites, they were fed by God. They were given exactly what they needed for the day. If you remember the, the story in Exodus where, where the manna would come from heaven and they could only gather what was necessary for the moment and they couldn't keep anything else. It would spoil. Jesus had provided 
well more than enough. And they started thinking, five loaves, two fish, lots of people. Who is this guy? And when the people saw the sign, they saw what he had done. They said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Moses had spoken of a future prophet. Over time, the promised one, the promised one, it took on messianic terms, the one that was promised that would, that would help bring fulfillment to Israel, an anointed one would come. For a moment, for a moment, they had turned their attention from the sign and considered to whom the sign was pointing. But Jesus knew that this was temporary. He knew that this wouldn't last for long. And besides, the timing of this wasn't right. So Jesus, perceiving, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. If the first prophet Moses freed our people from the Egyptians, surely this second prophet, oh, he could deliver us from Rome. 5,000 men, just think about it, 5,000 men start their march the 100 miles back down to Jerusalem. With Jesus in the lead, it would be glorious. It would trigger a revolt. And as they, as they walked down closer to Jerusalem, they could pick up thousands upon thousands of more men. And they could maybe get four legions of people to come and to walk into the city and take it by force. And they would be free from Roman rule. But Jesus, not having any of that, withdrew. He withdrew again to the mountainside by himself. He takes the 12, he packs them up in the boat, says, hey guys, you go that way, I'll see you in a bit. Because he didn't want them to get caught up in this, this whole exciting mess of, hey, maybe this is it. Maybe we can go and we'll be famous. It'll be amazing. We'll finally get what we're due. He says, guys, we're not going to have any of that. You go get in the boat. Let's go. And eventually, eventually, though, Jesus would lead his disciples through the gates of Jerusalem at another Passover. But it wouldn't be one where he was crowned. It would be one where he was crucified. So John, so Jesus joins the, the 12 on the other side. And lo and behold, the crowds, they head that way too. Little did they know that he was about to thin out the crowd. And he was about to call them out. And he was about to call us out. Have you ever heard someone say, I gave up on faith or I gave up on church because I wasn't getting anything out of it. How many of you said that not too long ago? I gave up on attending this church because I just wasn't getting anything out of it. I don't go to the Bible study because I don't get anything out of it. I went to a different church because I wasn't getting anything from that pastor. Jesus is about to make a point, and his point is this. As long as we're looking for an it... We still haven't gotten it. 
We're like children when their parent comes home from a trip, racing to the door saying, what did you get me? What did you bring me? So when the people found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus possibly shakes his head and he gets right to the point, to, to their point. And he says, you're seeking me. You're coming to me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He says, you missed the point of the sign. You thought the sign, the feeding was the point. But he says, do not, do not work for, do not live for, do not, do not give your life to. Do not think only about the food that perishes. But for the food that endures, for the food that endures to an eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Jesus says, I don't think you guys get it. You don't realize what I'm offering. If you did, you would recognize it and you would ask me different questions. You do, don't you even recognize who I am? God, Jesus says, has authorized me to work on his behalf. And all you can think about is lunch? All that you can think about is what you can get? All you can think about is how you're going to fill your stomach. So they said, what sign will you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? I mean, we want to know for sure. And you know, you know what, you know what, just, just kind of off the top of our heads, maybe, maybe, uh, here's an idea. Our fathers, our fathers, they ate manna in the wilderness. And all they were thought, thinking about was what they could receive. They were only thinking about what they could fill their own stomachs with. So I have a question when you find yourself in front of somebody that's important, somebody that has done a great thing, somebody that has engaged in great work, and they were to say to you, hey, listen, um, here I am. Uh, we spent a great time together. What do you need? Most of us could come up with a list, especially if that person is extremely wealthy, right? You know, oh, you know, I just need a few couple mil. It's good. But when, you are in, when you're put in front of somebody that is extremely important, somebody that's done something amazing, do you ask them for something for you? Or do you just ask them questions? Standing there on the shore of Galilee, they were in the presence of the light of the world. They were in the presence there on the shores of Galilee of God in a body, but they couldn't see past lunch. 
And many chose to unfollow that moment because the magic show was over. Perhaps they had an excuse. But us, on the other side of the resurrection, we have no excuse. So what about you? So what about me? Are we just in this for the food? Are we just in it for what we can get out of it? Are we just in it for what we can get out of him? If so, if that is where we are, if that is what we are, are, are looking to gain, we have not come to grips with whom we're dealing with. We're, we haven't come to grips with whom we've been invited to follow. Because here's what happened. His followers, by the way, they shaped the Western civilization. His followers were, were people that shaped the world. Everything was changed because of his followers and their dedication to what Jesus had done in them and through them. Because this thing that Jesus invites us to, it's no small thing. You know, I, you know thinking about it, if every Christian, if every Christian in the United States would love like Jesus for a week, truly love like Jesus for a week, the difference would be felt. If you, the body of First Castroville, loved like Jesus for a week, if you, if you forgave, if you were generous, if you put others before yourself, if you didn't ask the question, what's in it for me? But instead, you ask the most important question that Jesus asked, who do you believe I am? Because some people saw a magic rabbi and they lost interest after the show. Some of us have been treating God like a magic genie. God, give me what I want when I want it or otherwise I'm not playing your game. But a few recognized that this was God. This is God in disguise and they asked for nothing. They just followed. And in the end, he gave them absolutely more than they could have imagined. He gave them, he gave them himself. So Christian, I hope you're not just in this for lunch. I hope you're just not in this for what you get out of it. If you are, you're going to miss the adventure. And if you are, you will miss your Savior. Because you'll see that authentic relationship is impossible when you're always trying to get something 
Maybe it's time to stop negotiating with God. Maybe it's time to stop negotiating about the things that would bring you comfort so that you would feel okay enough to pay homage, to pay respect, to pay worship to your heavenly Father. God, I'd worship you if things were better in my life. God, I'd worship you if you had changed thus and so. God, I'd worship you if you would show me a sign. And my sign is a size red Lamborghini. If you'd stop negotiating and just say yes every single morning. If you would learn to say, God, here I am. Speak to me. For I'm listening. Speak to me, God. Make me bold. Does any of that sound familiar? Speak to me, Lord. I'm listening. Speak to me, God. Make me bold so that I can go and be poured out by you. So that I can be used by you. In other words, so I can follow. You have every reason to follow and no excuses not to. And John said it this way. Listen, I've written all of these things. I've written about these signs and these wonders. I've written about all of this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing, that by believing you may have life in his name. That you may have life in his name. And when that is enough, when life in his name is enough, your new life begins. The adventure begins. When life in Jesus is enough, the adventure begins. And until it's enough, your Savior, he may be reduced to the size and significance of a food truck that never has the right things on the menu. You'll find yourself negotiating with God. You'll you'll find yourself negotiating, as silly as it sounds, with the God of all creation. And this is a reminder to us to not be consumers. Let's not just go after life for what we can get, but let's be followers. Let's leave our mark. Let's leave his mark. Because his followers, they changed the world once. And perhaps we can do that again. As I think about how we as people tend to look at life in a perspective that is only for ourselves. It's oftentimes that is the biggest obstacle for us to actually having true belief in Jesus, for having saving faith in Christ. And we get to celebrate baptism this morning. We get to celebrate uh, a life that has been made new. When we get to celebrate that, uh, I hope we get to celebrate it as often as possible. But before we do that, I want to ask Lake to come up here. Uh, Lake's getting baptized today, and Lake wants to share his testimony with you.
Hello again. Um, my name is Lake. For those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm a member here at First Baptist Church, and I, I'm also one of the Sunday school teachers. Um, a few weeks ago, about two weeks ago, um, I received a text message um, that rather immediately ended a years-long wrestling match in my heart and mind. It was from my uncle, um, and he asked me, he asked me if I've ever heard his testimony. I said, no, sir, I haven't, but I would absolutely love to hear it. Um, I don't want to get too far into his or really at all because it's so strikingly similar to mine. Uh, I'll just start with mine. Um, I, was, I was raised in the Bible Belt, right? I was, and for the most part, I was raised in church, and, and um, I was around six or seven, I guess, probably faint, faint memories when I um, was led to pretty much say like the sinner's prayer and that I, I believe that Jesus died for me, and, and um, I accepted him into my heart as the prayer goes. But, and I was baptized shortly after. However, I don't think I knew my ABCs or one, two, threes very well, much less the substitutionary um, atonement that Christ paid for me in my place. And so I went about my life. I was going through school and getting to high school. And around, I want to say the sophomore year, um, is when God really lit a fire in my heart, uh, a love for him, um, and a fervor really was struck up. And I participated in FCA and Fellowship of Christian Athletes and everything. And I, and I would give messages and I would teach the student body and the congregation um, every week. And it was, it was a great time. But in my youthful ignorance and in my overzealousness and in um, those, those aspects, I let the disappointments um, that, that came with that life and, and the people around me make me angry and make me bitter and make me decide that I was going to chase my own selfish ambition, um, thinking that I was chasing God's will. But uh, in a brilliant move, I, I dropped out of college when I had a full ride and I decided to join the Navy because, again, sinful pride and ambition and what I wanted, I was going to go get. And so I went and went through um, certain things that rather quickly humbled me uh, and God brought me to the end of myself. You know, God brought me to the crisis of, of, of purpose and he brought me to the, the uh, I guess, the crisis of why I was there, where I was, and I had ran from the call um, as hard and as fast and as far as I could, like a, a good prodigal son does. Um, but in his grace and his mercy, abundant grace and mercy, through my many mistakes, he has ushered me back in to his will uh, and to his call. Um, and, you know, whether, whether my true understanding of Christ atonement for me was in high school or in the last couple of years to where God has really started delivering me from error to truth and to, uh, and to the purpose he has for my life. Um, I realized that like my uncle in his testimony, after he was being, you know, as a Christian for 25 years, um, he was convicted by the Holy Spirit that his baptism, his obedience and following Christ in, a, in baptism, I was on the wrong side of his salvation. And as soon as he told me and texted me that, Every last bit of fear and embarrassment and shame that I had uh, wrestling with this concept of being actually baptized and uh, on the right side of my, my salvation um, dissipated very quickly. Uh, and so today I uh, will be baptized for the first time and follow in my Lord, uh, Jesus Christ, in obedience. And um, I'm very excited to do that. I'm very excited to be a part of everything. And you guys are here and it's just a wonderful thing. And I, and I thank you all for, for loving me and every one of you who shared your, you know, words with me who just gave me love uh, and made me feel that it was, it was, there was no reason ever to be shamed 
or feel guilty or for any kind of like that. So thank you. So, like, we are we're excited uh, to be able to to get into that baptistry, uh, the maiden voyage of our baptistry over there. Yeah. And I don't want you to miss. He said, "I want to be baptized on the right side of my salvation." And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, in understanding that we we engage in believers' baptism. And Lake is on the side of, I know for 100% that Jesus is my Savior and that he is Lord. And we're so thankful. Let's pray.